Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. Hey, welcome to another episode of Concerts That Made Us. I'm your host Brian and I'm here to guide you through the next hour of concert memories. But before we get into it, please rate and review us on iTunes and make sure you check us out at our website www.concertsthatmadeus.com Now I just want to give a special thank you to Winnie and GMAC at the Outlaw Blitz podcast for making this episode possible. Make sure you stick around to the end to hear a trailer for their brilliant podcast. Now my guest this week is the brilliant Wax Mechanics. I really had a great time chatting with Wax. He's such a great guy and I know you're going to really enjoy this episode. So we're going to take a listen to one of Wax's brilliant songs. I suggest you turn it up. So now, without further ado... Let's get on with the show. Well, I know your heart is always out of 
Hi, Wax. You're very welcome to Concerts That Made Us. Thanks for having me, Brian. Oh, I'm delighted to have you. It's a, an absolute honor. So uh, for those that haven't heard you before, would you like to tell the listeners a bit about yourself? I'm an American. I'm a songwriter. I'm a uh, record producer. I'm a musician. And uh, I have a, uh, a new album out that's uh, on Electric Talent Records. And the album is called Mobocracy, predominantly known as a, a rock artist. I have a bit of history in that I was a founding member of an American hard rock quartet called Nitro. And uh, we were formed in the early 80s and we're kind of like the America's answer to the new wave of British heavy metal. So we were taking all kinds of influences from American rock as well as uh, uh, European and, and UK rock and putting it through our lens and giving it back. Uh, and we made a few records uh, on our own. We made a few records with some uh, uh, other labels and they can be found uh, uh, relatively easily with a bit of Googling. But I'm here as a solo artist today. Ah, you have a, a very long and uh, storied history. So, Sure do. I've been at this for uh, actively recording and uh, uh, writing for more than 40 years. So as you can tell, I'm defying that 25-year-old uh, that I appear to be. <laughs> <laughs> you look like a, a newbie to the music scene. Well, uh, my vintage status, and I, I think I'm going to call it that. Let's call it my vintage status. Uh, it doesn't intimidate it, me or seems to doesn't seem to intimidate anybody else. But, um, you know, we've got people like Ozzy Osbourne that's in his 70s now. Uh, you know, Bob Dylan reached 80 years old today. Uh, Macca is in his late 70s. You know, the uh, the boys in Oasis are in their 50s now. So uh, I'm a bit older than them, but not as old as Ozzy. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's strange to think that all these great rock stars are getting on in, in their ages and they're still out there touring and making records. You know, it's, it's amazing. Well, uh, there was this uncharted territory that had to be pioneered and that's what they're doing. You know, uh, just as an example, you know, Dylan is at the top of everybody's mind today because we're recording this on the 24th of May and uh, uh, he's turning 80 years old. And who would have conceived of that? And even that he made 80 years old, but to be making important music at this age, his last album, which whether you're a fan of it or not, has to be acknowledged that it, he's still creative, creatively viable and is worthy of that Nobel uh, Prize that he won in 2016. Uh, he's just one example. So uh, whenever I get a bit, not concerned, but I think about age relative to the vocation here, I think of people like him. And so uh, it's a new territory that's being pioneered by them. And so they're blazing the trail again, and it's going to make it easier for people like me. But I still feel as if I've got my best work is ahead of me. So imagine that. <laughs> it's always the best way to to approach work i find you haven't done your best work yet 
yeah, creatively, I think that people, if they're going to continue to create any meaningful art or, or creative uh, work of any kind, you have to at least think that the horizon's the better place to be. Yeah, I completely agree. So uh, at the at the beginning there, we heard your song "All Freaks." Would you like to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that was uh, that's off this album I'm calling Mobocracy, and it's been out since November. And it's uh, one of the one of six tracks I have on there. Um, for those that don't know it, I found myself as an American sort of taking in all this information that we were getting in the run up to the 2016 election and the tectonic shifts that, that were going on in American society and politics. And I didn't set out to make records that were reflecting those times, but it kind of happened. And All Freaks was one of the first ones that I wrote. Uh, I'm a big fan of pop and you'll hear some pop construction and some uh, pop craftsmanship in it. I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Brits like Elvis Costello, even though I'm predominantly a hard rock artist. I, uh, I'm a big fan of that. And I found that uh, what I typically do is I'm a, you know, I'm a accumulation of my influences. So that one, I know that when I was writing it, I was on what I call my Elvis Costello jag. I was listening to the Ramones, the MC5, uh, some Green Day uh, and Motorhead. So of, of the, that particular song uh, musically reflects those kinds of influences, specifically the Motorhead from the early stuff like Ace of Spades and then uh, some Elvis Costello. You can hear strains of Pump It Up in there, the Ramones, those short, uh, concise, uh, aggressive uh, and, and heavy songs. So that's what I was trying to do. So I wanted to make sure that it was aggressive, it was heavy, and it was concise and had all kinds of pop qualities to it. So uh, uh, thematically, I wanted it to talk about some of the things that we were experiencing here in the U.S. I, I didn't do it in a, in a real deliberate way. Uh, you know, the way that I kind of create, I, I kind of let it come to me. I don't go chasing it. So uh, I find that works best for me. And that's what I did with uh, All Freaks. And I found that uh, the, the theme was uh, basically a description of the kinds of things that I was experiencing in America at the time. And I wrote it in about 2016, 2017. And we had this severe polarization that was going on. So we had friends and loved ones that were pointing fingers around and I was uh, as guilty as the next guy. So uh, we were pointing fingers at each other and feeling the heat of the changing times. And I found uh, that uh, the way that I summed it up was that everybody thought that the other was a freak. So that's what, that's how it gave rise to that. And the details of the lyrics basically talk about that polarization and how we feel like that uh, somebody else is the enemy when in reality, we're all sort of exhibiting the same characteristics. So no great statement, but that's kind of what came. Uh, and uh, I followed it more than I led it anywhere. But musically, it was aggressive. I wanted it to be short, poppy, aggressive with a little bit of punk influence and some of that heavy stuff that I was feeling from the motorheads of the world. And, um, and in, in America, you know, the Van Halen had stuff that was fast like that as well. So uh, anthrax as well. So those are the influences that came. I uh, brought to bear on all freaks. And so far, uh, uh, seems to be a relatively positive response to it and the video that I put out for it. I feel like um, that time period, especially in America, is, uh, it was an interesting time, but it was real fuel for creativity. If you're a creative type of person, you know, if um, you could really focus on what was in the news, what was happening around you, and it kind of bleed creativity, if you know what I mean. 
Yeah. The way that I approach it, and I'm not sure how many how other artists approach it, is sometimes there's a mission statement and you go after it. Other times you are, and I like this term, I'm the pond reflecting the oncoming stone. So <laughs> that's what I kind of felt like. And that's what I wanted to do at that point was to let the songs come to me. And uh, I had done a lot of uh, writing over the decades of sort of, go, sort of going after it and writing to uh, the desires of other people. So this time around, I, I kind of let them come to me. And it was a fertile period. And I know I'm not the only one that experienced that. And when we get lots of input, there's going to be uh, the responsive output. So uh, it felt natural. And although those times are not at an end, it was really tumultuous then. It was aggressive. There was a lot of anger going on in America. And I know that uh, we were telegraphing that around the world, unfortunately, but that's the way we do things here. But yeah, I felt it for sure. And many of my uh, creative friends also felt it and were turning out work that was reflective of it. Yeah, yeah. It always happens down throughout history anyway, doesn't it? Like the 60s gave uh, gave life to a new breed of music and it reflected on the, the politics of the age and 70s, 80s. It kind of happens in every every so often. Yeah, and we can say that for any creative form, you know, painting or literature or, you know, the fine arts for sure. If we go back, you know, the Renaissance period and, you know, the obvious ones are, uh, you know, Picasso in his various periods and uh, Miles Davis in jazz and obviously the Bob Dylans and the Beatles and you uh, two, those kinds of folks as well. Uh, I think that that's one of our jobs, even though it, it may not be a mission statement for artists, but that's kind of what happens to us and what draws us to it is we take stuff in and we give it back. And most of the time it has to do with political and social commentary um, and I, I try to avoid it at all costs if I can, because I'm not educated. That's not my area of expertise, but uh, we are those influences that come to us, I think. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. But um, we'll move on to your musical influences now. Your, uh, what would be your earliest musical memory? Oh, my earliest musical memory was real distinctive. Uh, I was born in the early 60s, so in the mid-60s, when the Beatles were really gaining lots of traction, it just permeated American society. You know, after 1964 and the Ed Sullivan show, uh, uh, we really embraced the, the Beatles here in the U.S. So I was, this was 1966, so I was just a, a little guy at that point, and I was walking through a department store with my mother, and I have this memory of uh, my hand in hers, and... Uh, we're walking through our local department store and I hear wafting from the music department, the strains of Yellow Submarine by the Beatles. And that's tailor-made for a toddler. It's a sing-songy kind of thing. And I don't know what McCartney was trying to do, but it sure did resonate with me at that point. I was uh, three or four years old. And uh, I found myself within a few steps being drawn to it and uh, singing along with it because it was so easy. You know, that's a vivid image for a little person. Uh, about a yellow submarine. And I thought, this is wonderful at the time. I, and and this is, it's a shadow of a memory, but it was kind of like, this is really fun that they did this for little kids like me. <laughs> I thought it was a <laughs> deliberate move to write, you know, I thought it was custom made for me. So uh, if I ever get to uh, uh, meet Paul McCartney and shake his hand, I'm going to thank him for that experience. I wouldn't blame you. There's a, <laughs> there's many people like, you know, especially yellow submarine really, 
is like a kid's song. You can almost picture it as theme song to some kid's cartoon. And even yeah. the the imagery that went along with it, it is like a kid's cartoon. You'd imagine it's on some kid's channels, you know. But um, I think a lot of their songs, they had this great simplicity, but also lyrically they were kind of you could see the simplicity in them but then they were geniuses of musicians and lyricists at the same time you know well when we and we've all experienced this with Beatles if we paid attention at all is that in most of those songs uh not most of them but a, a big chunk of them they sound familiar at first listen and that's the beauty of specifically McCartney even though Lennon and Harrison and, and Starr obviously had their their time, but McCartney is the one that's most well known for crafting those wonderful melodies that resonate. And you think, I swear I've heard that before. And, you know, I could go down the list of Beatles songs that resonated with me like that. And as an artist, I think, you know, the way that I look at it is let's, let's take the extraordinary and make it ordinary. And then conversely, let's take the ordinary and make it feel extraordinary. And I think they were at the top of their craft and doing that. And I took my lead from them whenever I think about writing. Uh, them and a handful of other artists that are of that generation. So the Beatles did it exquisitely well. And uh, McCartney three still touches on it. He hasn't lost it, even though it's not there in the same strength that it was in the sixties. Uh, I still respect him and, and, and go to his work for inspiration and just general enjoyment. Would it be uh, safe to say he'd be your favorite Beatle then? Well, it's it's like uh, I'll use the cliche. It's like asking me who my favorite child is if I had four of them. <laughs> you, know, you love them all for different reasons. They were magnificent, and uh, I'm not anybody that can say it any better than what it's already been said by other critical thinkers. But uh, I would say that as a songwriter, uh, I like McCartney and Lennon equally because I've tried to incorporate and identify with both sides of them. You know, Lennon with his acerbic wit. And uh, his uh, uh, low grit, as we say here in America, his low grit personality and uh, McCartney uh, with his tunefulness and his thoughtfulness. So it's wonderful to be able to have those examples to go by. And I've I've used them and uh, without any guilt or apology, I will draw on them for inspiration as often as I can. And I did that on this record as well. And all freaks specifically to strengthen the melody uh, in the bridge. Uh, I was talking to the band and the producer about uh, how I wanted it to be melodic and uh, pointed them to some Beatles songs and the Elvis Costello and Motorhead and all the other stuff that I was pointing to. The Beatles, you can't escape them. If you want to be a musician or a songwriter in the 20th century or the 21st century, you can't escape them. I'm not saying they're the be on the end all. I'm just saying they are a major uh, uh, signpost if you're going to do it well, I think. Oh, yeah. Completely, without a doubt. Uh, I find it funny though that nowadays I remember. Do you remember Paul McCartney played guitar on a Kanye West song with I think it was Rihanna a couple of years ago? And there was one, two, three, something or other. I think was the name of the song. Something like that. Yeah, there was a there was lots of say teenagers and early twenties saying, "Oh, it's so nice that they give that old guy a chance," not knowing (laughs) who he who like who was playing guitar and who Paul McCartney actually is. I think that's kind of funny nowadays how there is people who may not have heard of the Beatles and may not know who Paul McCartney is. I think that, uh, you know, Paul's got it in perspective. His legacy is, is cemented in history for sure. 
Um, things ebb and flow, you know, throughout history. We've got great writers, we've got great politicians, great business people, great artists, and their time is short. And uh, McCartney and the Beatles have been exceptionally long, so we can't really use them as a standard. I don't hold it against young people that don't know the catalog like I do, because I don't know their catalog, uh, their favorites catalog as well as I should, I guess. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of looking at it. All right. So um, the first album or single you ever purchased, what was it? Well, that was Kiss Alive. I'm sorry, Kiss, the first album. I'm sorry, uh, the first album by Kiss. That I had records in the house before that because my parents and my siblings had them. But the first one that I actually went out and purchased with my own hard-earned American dollars was the first Kiss album. And it had things on it like Strutter and Deuce. And those were uh, my first. And I was probably, well, what was that, 1975 possibly? So I was maybe 12 years old. Yeah. In, in any case, uh, I really liked it. Uh, I liked the whole image of, of Kiss. And it, I was ripe. For, for them to market to me because of the whole comic book approach. And it was, uh, it, it was just over the top. And as a young teenager, I was drawn toward that. And I was learning to play drums at the time. So it appealed to me, the simplicity of it appealed to me. And I could think about whether I was going to be able to do that kind of thing. And it was easy for me to achieve. So it all seemed well, much well in my wheelhouse. And I, I got a lot of uh, traction out of that record for sure. I've, I've owned it a few times uh, on just about every format you can think of. <laughs> I appreciate it for what it is. It's not great art, but it was the, it was my gateway drug into uh, what I see as my hard rock period and my period of saying, Hey, I could do this before that. I was in love with pop music and uh, you know, things that were on the radio, just like anybody else. But that was my first conscious effort to make a, um, to get involved. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, back then when you got, when they came out and you got their record, would they have been uh, frowned upon by adults or parents of the day, so to speak? Well, my parents were were relatively uh, uh, hands off. So I don't even think they knew for a while that I purchased it because I wasn't a child that needed a lot of looking over. So I, I had my own money from my own little jobs that I was making, and the, I'm sure they kept an eye on me. I didn't have a deliberate discussion with them, but they were kind of surprised by some of the records that I had. I know that other parents really had a problem with Kiss because of the, you know, the uh, the lightning bolt S's. They thought they were associated with Nazism in the SS, which we come to understand that it wasn't. Uh, also, the you know the demonic satanic stuff that they were projecting because of uh, Gene Simmons, they had characters. And I mm. saw it as kabuki theater like they had intended it. Now, you know, there's no great philosophy behind Kiss. They just wanted to be the New York Dolls and Alice Cooper, but they wanted to be it over the top. And uh, they wanted to be the Beatles in makeup. And I understand that. And that appealed to me and it resonated with me. And it was, uh, it was undeniable. Uh, but I have to say that the, the parents weren't really the problem. The problem was that we had friends and... Uh, other musical aficionados that didn't appreciate them. So I had to defend my choices with my fists sometimes. You know, at that time, Zeppelin was coming up and I liked that. Uh, ELO was big. Uh, a lot of British stuff, you know, Black Sabbath, that kind of thing. Uh, American bands like uh, in the mid to late 70s as well. And 
I had to defend my musical choices a few times. So I literally had to raise fists to say, hey, I'm a Kiss fan. And what do you have to say about it? (laughs) (laughs) So Dean and Paul are out there. uh, You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) That's something I never thought I'd hear now on the podcast. Someone had to fight to defend her. her, uh, (laughs) Much to like Kiss. Well, I, I I wasn't solely, a, you know, my my tastes were pretty broad uh, for a kid of that age. And I was, as I said, I was left kind of unattended as a child, even though my parents were there, kind of hands off. So I was listening to all kinds of things. Uh, I, I was a fan of the things that my friends were. But when they saw the Kiss album and, you know, I would talk to them about how I liked it, they would have issue with it. And eventually you get a bunch of young teenage boys together and there somebody has a big to differ. The next thing you know, you're rolling around in the scrum (laughs) (laughs) but it was fun oh yeah that's the main thing (laughs) they're actually a a band that i've managed to see in concert myself and it would have been say 2008 2009 and back to what we were saying about rock stars being older they still had it like gene simmons was flying around the stadium on wires and they were really able to put on one hell of a show even at the ages they were then i'd seen them a few times and uh, they're like going to the circus i don't go to them for great art i don't go to kiss the same way i go to bob dylan or the beatles or neil young or u2 or elvis costello or oasis or uh you know uh or Backrack or Mozart. I go to Kiss for a particular thing. They're still part of my musical DNA. And um, I can point to things on the new record of all these artists that I'm talking about. So I know what they are. Um, I appreciate them for what they are. They know what they are. And that makes me feel good. Um, I'm not belittling it. I just, I'm saying it's not, it was never meant to be great art. It was never meant to compete with the Dylans and the Beatles and the U2s of the world. And if they decided to do that, and I think they tried that in, for instance, in the early 80s when they made that album called uh, Music from the Elder, even though it was a good record, just listening to it from a creative standpoint, you know, it was the kiss of death, pun intended, because they uh, were outside of their wheelhouse and people didn't, your fans didn't want to hear that from them. So I understand that. And God bless them. Uh, they are an institution. And uh, although they're not a big part of my diet, they're a big part of my history and my influences and my friends that I eventually like the fellas in Nitro that I hooked up with, they were all fans of it too. So that was one of the things that uh, resonated with me and why I ended up with them. We played a few Kiss songs in our live sets when we were doing cover songs. I still like it and still own them all. Oh, interesting. That, uh, that's a good segue to bring us on to the very first concert you played. Well, the very first concert that we played, let's see. I had, as musicians, when you're coming up, I'm not sure if you're a musician or not, but uh, you'll end up in a pickup band and at the local uh, pub. uh, And that was probably about 1977 or 78. I played at a local pub with some friends that had lost their drummer and needed somebody to sit in. So they were playing all the typical cover songs. And it was uh, at a local, they call them American Legions. It's for uh, uh, veterans. It's like a veterans kind of organization. And it's an exclusive club. So they book entertainment in there. And our local one in our town uh, had this band that I was friends with. And they said, will you come in and play the drums? Our drummer is not going to show up. So, And they said, we'll give you $20 to show up. So I said, sure. So I learned the songs. We rehearsed once or twice. And up on stage I was. And that was probably about 1977 or 78. And uh 
it taught me a lot about the music business. Number one is it taught me that I liked performing and that I knew I found something that I could do. And the other thing was they didn't pay me, though. I knew what the music business was about from a financial standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> so that's stick, that stuck with me since then. Uh, but a lot of fun. Uh, that was, yeah, that was on a cold winter night in 1977 or 78. Sorry, I can't remember exactly when, but ah. all covered songs. And did the, uh, did the crowd enjoy it? Did the were you able to get them going and energized? Interestingly enough, I remember two things. There was a duality to this performance. You knew exactly uh, what you were, uh, if you were delivering or not, because the dance floor would fill up if you played a song that people liked. And they were there to drink and to get rowdy uh, they, and, and dance and carry on, just like any pub around the world. Uh, so uh, there were people, blue collar folks that just wanted to let off some steam and they wanted to dance. And if you were playing, you playing some sort of esoteric uh, navel gazing kind of stuff, they were going to start to boo you. I, mean, I don't remember anything thrown at us, but the dance floor was empty and it was just silence. So we were kind of like playing for ourselves. But then we found some songs that were popular uh, that people responded to it and the floor filled up and the drink sort of flowed and the applause happened. And I remember that. And that made a big impression on me saying that, okay, if you're going to do this kind of thing, uh, meaning play live, uh, you have to play stuff that the people that are paying that are there, uh, the audience, uh, that they'll respond to. So that made a big influence or that was a big influence on me and made a big impact. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine you really have to research the chart music and see what's popular at the time and know what will uh, what will get the audience going? There are two things that can be done when you're starting on this uh, road to uh, playing music live like that. One is, am I going to do it for uh, the enjoyment of the audience so that I can make a buck? Uh, or am I going to do it for some creative outlet? And you got most musicians, they weave in and out of those two intersecting. So... That was one of the things we did is uh, that mission statement was, yeah, we're there to make sure that they dance and that the, uh, the person that hired us makes some money and that way we get asked to come back. And uh, so I do remember going down through and there were top 10 songs and classic rock songs in the mid seventies. It was typical bar music, you know, Rolling Stones, Beatles and that kind of stuff. Uh, it was fun to play. We, it was, it was a guitar based band. So two guitars, drums, and bass, and uh, vocals. So you were limited in what you could offer. So we were trying to play those things that were recognizable and that were mm. up to tempo, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, the last concert you've played then, when would that have been? Wow, that would have been two days ago. Now, it wasn't really a concert, but it was a live performance. So if we can use that term. Yeah, you can indeed. So today's Monday, the 24th. So on Saturday, I was, I'm working on some new music in the studio in Philadelphia. So I had all my gear with me, basically my acoustic guitar. So uh, I sat outside on the stoop, opened up my guitar case. This was after the session and uh, had my guitar case open up. And I think it's called busking, right? That's what yeah. I did. I sat there and the masks were off. So you've got a lot of people that are starting to mill around here in the U.S. because of the, the pandemic is a little more agreeable. So I was able to take my mask off. And this was the first time in many, many months that I've done it. So I sat out there on the stoop, uh, played a whole bunch of original stuff. And I made about uh, $12.58, I think, in about two bad. hours. So 
I had all these, these, uh, you know, the, the songs kind of pile up and that's how I test them out is I will throw myself into a busking situation where there is no filter and it's as brutal as it can possibly be. And I sit there with an acoustic guitar and I'll play the, some of the songs that I'm interested in testing out just to see what the reaction is going to be. And honestly, just to revisit that live situation. So yeah, that was Saturday and that was the 20, 22nd. Yeah. 22nd. Uh, of May. So from 1977 until 2021, <laughs> believe it or not, I made some money. Well, I made more money this time than I did that time. <laughs> <laughs> You're actually the first person I've had on the podcast now when I've asked them when their last gig was that they've said such a recent time. Normally it's like, oh, 2019 or the start of 2020. And I know live music is starting to pick up in America at the moment, but there's still nothing on this side of the planet. And I know there's musicians that would actually kill to be in your shoes now to have played live two days ago. It's amazing to hear. It felt like uh, putting on a, a well-worn pair of jeans, you know, any other cliche, riding a bicycle, putting on a pair of sneakers or whatever, trainers. Uh, I needed to do it not so much to make the money or to test the songs out, but just to re-familiarize myself with it. I know that we're on the cusp of doing this, so I wanted to revisit it and see if the muscle memory was there and if I knew how to do it. And interestingly enough, yeah, I'd been doing it for 40-some years off and on, and uh, that was the most direct way. The long version of this story, and it'll just take a second, was that I was thinking about how, you know, and everyone is, is, is leaning into the leash to get out and play again, and I was talking to some of my friends about doing that. And we've got all these grand plans to do it. You need a PA and you need all these instruments and you need a drummer. And you need. A, and I just said, hold on. I don't need to do all that to get out of this, what I want to do. I'll just revert back to what it was originally. I will sit out on the stoop outside the studio when it's done, when my session is done, open up my guitar case and start playing. And I know in Philadelphia, people were walking back and forth now because the pandemic is starting to loosen up. And, uh, you know, you have a guitar case open there and you're sitting and playing. People think, well, this guy is interested in making some money and they'll toss some coins into your guitar case. So I wasn't there so much to make the money was as I was to refamiliarize myself with the process and to see if those muscles were still there or if they were atrophied to a point where I needed to do something else. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what about the the nerves side of it after so long were you nervous getting back in front of an audience so to speak uh a little bit the first two i played maybe you know a dozen songs or something like that during this little bit of time i was there uh when i saw you know traffic was picking up i'd start to play again if traffic died down i wouldn't just play to myself so um what i found was that the first few songs that I played, it was a little nervous and I had some butterflies, but it, that felt familiar as well. Because if you haven't played for a while, or even, you know, I don't really have stage fright, but I remember those times early on when I would get excited, either it was an important gig or I was jacked up over something that uh, I, that was a familiar feeling. And that familiar, familiar feeling, it was reassuring that uh, I felt it again, meaning mm -hmm. a little bit of butterflies or that nervousness. So all of that stuff refamiliarized me with process so that felt good yeah i was a little bit nervous but after a while two or three songs in everything seems to settle down yeah yeah it's uh i imagine to feel it again would have been quite comforting as well yeah it's uh it's something that i've i've done for decades and that if i don't do it for a while 
I, I feel out of sorts. And you can't approximate it any other way other than to throw yourself in front of people. There are two things that I kind of do. One is to, you know, I'm a songwriter and a recording musician. The other thing is a performer and to play live. So you have to use different muscles and a, a different sort of uh, set of, a different side of my brain, I think, is the way that I put it. Uh, I use a different side of my brain when I'm playing live than when I do when I'm recording. Uh, recording is more creative. Uh, performance is more like, the only thing I can equate it to is I wasn't and still an athlete. It's almost like a sport. Mm. You know, there's all kinds of mechanical stuff that goes on and muscle memory takes, uh, takes over. So, uh, and to work on this well-worn Dylan theme that we've, we've been on today because of his 80th birthday, I try to know my song well before I start singing. So I don't have to remember it. Uh, it's almost automatic. So mm. the rest of it is to loosen up and to see how elastic it is and, I didn't play the songs live like I do recording them because different instrumentation and tempos and things like that. So uh, it's a whole different animal, but it was comforting to do that again. So uh, this will bring us to the worst gig you've ever played or the worst experience you've had at a gig. Oh, the worst experience I've ever had was when a gig was canceled because of a, uh, uh, because of a fire. So uh, I wasn't involved in that, but uh, this was at a gig that I was doing with Nitro and it was in a small town and uh, the, we found that the place no longer existed and that the, the fellow's pub had burned down and I think some people had died. Oh. And that was just really, really strange. And I really couldn't get my head around it. And there was a second gig that also sticks out. Now that was one that was sort of shocking and to me in that, you know, I was familiar with those people that were involved with it. The other thing that was really shocking was in March of 1982, we were playing a gig um, in the U.S. at our regular sort of teen club that had hard rock bands. And Nitro had an album out at the time and we were feeling pretty good about ourselves and uh, everyone was excited. And we played uh, on the 20th of March, which was the day after the death of the late, great Randy Rhodes. So Randy Rhodes was Ozzy Osbourne's guitarist, and we were huge fans of Ozzy, and Randy specifically. And that gig was probably the toughest one to get through because everybody in the room knew it because we were all familiar with the, that, that kind of music. The audience knew it. We knew it. And I remember when we played those songs, we played like two or three songs from uh, the first two Ozzy albums. There were people in the audience that were crying and it took all I had at that age being a, a strapping young lad to not shed a tear because that really, uh, you know, being, uh, we're, we're, I'm not exactly Rhodes' age, he's a bit older than me, but still that made things seem not so infinite that things were fleeting and that things like that could happen. So that was really shocking. That was probably, yeah, that was that one in the fire were probably two of the worst ones that I've ever been involved in, you know, peripherally. But the Randy Rhodes uh, gig that we played, and this was a place that they loved us and we were looking forward to it. And then we hear that Rhodes got killed and it was just, it was terrible. And people in the audience were crying. And, uh, I even think we stopped the gig short because we were just done. The audience was done, we were done. and. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. That was one of the few difficult times, I think. Yeah, that's, it definitely merits the, the worst experience or worst gig badge anyway. It's, uh, 
I don't know, it just it must have been so somber and just an awful vibe during it and everything. You know, obviously nobody was really in the mood to be at a gig. They were all just rather remember Randy Rhodes. And I do remember that we we sort of uh, melted into the audience and it was all sort of anti, uh, you know, there was an anticlimax to the whole thing. The rock shows that we were doing at the time were really celebratory kinds of things, up-tempo. It was early 80s, you know, new wave of British heavy metal kind of stuff that we were doing. Hmm. And our sets were just filled with up-tempo songs that were joyful and celebratory. And we were in uncharted territory with this thing. And we melted into the, after we put our tools down, we kind of melted into the crowd. And I remember getting incredibly drunk with some friends there and we were, toasting Randy Rhodes and, you know, at the time, and I don't condone it, nor do I do it now, but, you know, we were smoking a lot of uh, Mother Nature's finest weed and drinking beers. And I was 20 years old at the time. And I remember that uh, there were tears that were shed. There were people that were hugging. We didn't even know this guy. Hmm. He was in California. You know, he he was a Californian via uh, the UK. And uh, here we were. It It was like a family member was lost. And to tell somebody that didn't know about Randy Rhodes or how much that music meant to us, to tell them why we were so somber or why we were so uh, maudlin about it, it you couldn't describe it. I tried to tell my, I remember trying to tell my parents about it and they just didn't understand it. And I understand that. So um, that was really difficult, but it taught me a lot about how to be ready for the, you know, the unexpected. Yeah. But uh, on that note, let me bring the sunny side of the mountain in for the last very, very last thing is that it was wonderful that Randy Rhodes has been nominated for the uh, uh, 2021 Hall of Fame. Uh, mm. so that was wonderful. So said all that to say that Randy's getting his due and his recognition. Unfortunately, he's not here to take advantage of it. And I just read an article today where Ozzy was saying he wouldn't have had a career without Randy Rhodes. So uh, Ozzy, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's great that he's finally getting recognition and that Ozzy came out and said that about him. You know, that even Ozzy recognizes how great he was and what he did for him. Well, uh, in the UK, you know, obviously uh, Rhodes is is not as famous as, as Ozzy is and his career was short. But I think we all know that uh, there was uh, a broad and, and, and deep uh, relationship that Randy had with the UK. Uh, they, they recorded in Surrey at Ridge Farm. Um, played the, the first Blizzard of Oz tour throughout the UK. And before they even had a record deal in the US, they were on flames in the, uh, in the UK. People loved them. And listening to those early recordings are great. Uh, you know, Chelmsford and Car- Cardiff and uh, some other places in Glasgow as well. So beautiful thing. So Randy Rhodes, may his memory live forever. Exactly, exactly. We'll uh, get a little more up-tempo ourselves now i'm looking forward to hearing this answer what's the best experience or the best gig you've ever played that was 1983 so i'm i'm the uh, founding member of this band nitro and uh we uh had just released our new record with mausoleum records of belgium so we'd just gotten signed after appearing in the pages of sounds and kerrang things like that we were just getting our leg up and we had done a do-it-yourself kind of uh, uh, release uh, in, the, uh, in 1981 and 82. And then we got some notice from your, your, your uh, folks across the pond in the UK 
and uh, we, somehow our records appeared there. And we were signed, freshly signed to this Belgian label called Mausoleum, and we had delivered our, our uh, first record for them. And there was an American band called Kicks that were signed to Atlantic Records, and they were in our neck of the woods, and they asked us to open up some shows for them. So we played two or three shows with them where they were the largest crowds that we had ever played to at the time. And it was just a really joyous experience. It's confluence of feeling like we've uh, had a paradigm shift in our career. And it was one of the most important ones. Our run was relatively short and, and abbreviated. We didn't turn into Metallica, but we had a fun little run. And that was one of the best gigs we ever had because we were seen by this band that we respected and that were signed to a legitimate major label, Atlantic Records. We were seen by them as uh, colleagues. And that was something that wasn't, that was kind of unspoken, but uh, they had heard of us and uh, they invited us to play some gigs with them. And the crowds were probably, I don't know, a few thousand people, but it was, it was meaningful for us. Uh, and I remember that the, there were two gigs and one was in this uh, town in Pennsylvania called Altoona. It's a city that was not as big as Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or New York, but um, everything came together there. And I remember that uh, being at that gig and playing the gig and everything, you know, we performed relatively well, so that was good. But I remember at that age, I was 20, 21 years old, maybe, uh, and thinking, I need to remember this because this is really something that I'm, I'm going to have to look back on later. For some reason, I had the presence of mind to do that you know, in, in among the fog of beer and God knows what else we were doing at the time. But the adrenaline rush itself just made the whole thing uh, really surreal. So that was, yeah, Kicks 1983 in Altoona, Pennsylvania with my band Nitro. I was a drummer at the time and uh, that was fun sitting up there looking at uh, looking at uh, the crowd and, and the short set that we did. Um, ours was relatively mild and, uh, or minor and, and modest pedigree, but we're part of this little cult fetish that's going on, on on the internet for American bands. So we're thankful for it, but a bit puzzled by it. I, a past guest I had mentioned that they've, they played Glastonbury. Wow. I asked them what it was like compared to playing their earlier gigs when they were just getting started and then, you know, playing to a crowd of 10, 20,000 people. And they said, you're either playing to 50 individual people or one crowd. It's like it's just a sea of faces and you don't feel as nervous because you can't pick any individual out that might critique you. So it helps with the nerves. That's the way they put it. What way would you have uh, approached the nerves to playing such a massive gig? Well, I felt even though that gig I've just described was was much smaller than Glastonbury, um, I felt exactly like that. There were there were probably between three and four thousand people there, I think, at the time, which was the largest crowd we ever played to. And we were used to playing to you know a dozen or you know a few hundred at best in our regular gigs. So uh, I felt the same way. It was easier to play to a larger crowd. I was more relaxed. Uh, and when there's only one or two people in a in a club, and we all do that as as musicians when we're apprenticing, is you'll play to you know a, half, a handful of people. Those are the toughest gigs because you have to you almost have a personal relationship with those few people that are there. So that's really hard. Um, those playing with to the larger crowds is much easier. And uh, I found that as I was describing the busking incident uh, that I recently had the other night. Uh, that was difficult. The most difficult part was looking the people in the eyes as they walked by and they wanted to talk a bit and we chatted for a bit. 
And even though I'm a bit of a, you know, a gregarious kind of guy when I can be, I'm, I'm mostly, you know, uh, a shy kind of person. So it, that's tough to do. Playing to the larger crowds are much easier for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, the busking, actually, that's very, very common in Ireland. Yes. And before the pandemic, you couldn't walk down uh, main street in a town without coming across three, four, maybe five buskers. Unless you're in Dublin, then it's like you get 10 feet and there's a busker, yep. you know. But uh, I remember growing up and looking at these guys with their guitars standing on the side of the street singing. And I remember thinking to myself, that's the scariest thing anybody could do, <laughs> especially in your own town. And I remember thinking to myself as this little six or seven year old, the guys I see on MTV playing massive concerts have it so easy because they're not standing under their own town playing to people that might know them. It's just it's a weird little thought that used to go through my mind. But I always found it a scary thought to be there on your own with a guitar busking on the side of the street, you know, and as you said, make an eye contact. Yeah, the, the, the analogy is you feel a bit naked. So hmm. uh, I didn't subject myself to it because I liked it. I subjected myself to it because it was necessary. Uh, so the, the busking is, is to, is to kind of trial by fire. So, uh, and I don't like doing it, frankly, but I knew I had to do it and being, you know, somewhat uh, shy and, and introverted personally, it enables me to uh, uh, grow personally. So I feel there's a bit of a challenge yeah, in your own town, uh, for people that know you and that may not like you or may not enjoy what you're delivering, that's a tough sell. And I had mm. a few people come by that just kind of looked at me like, what are you doing here? This isn't very good. I'm not enjoying this. And they just walk right past. So yeah. that's part of it. Uh, playing to those large crowds, you know, if you're a rock star now like Ozzy or like, you know, Noel Gallagher and the flying High Flying Birds, he, he, nobody shows up that doesn't like you. They show up because they like you. So you're going to be adored from the first second. So um, uh, the busking is a real, it's, it's, it's a challenge. And um, if you haven't done it, it's live without a net with no clothes on. That's what it feels like. <laughs> That's the best analogy for I've ever heard. <laughs> Not pretty, but uh, that, that, that approximates it. <laughs> so um, at this stage, we get slightly more personal normally so um not too personal now so you don't need to get worried a anything <laughs> uh, Brian, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to, to be to be a good guest if you could see any performer from any stage in history living or dead in concert for one night who would it be well a music from a musical standpoint it would certainly be randy rhodes just because of the greatness of his work and the brevity of it and I, I had an opportunity to see him uh, back in 1981 when they were touring through my area and we blew it off saying, oh, we'll go another time because it, it conflicted oh. with a gig we were supposed to play. And we all had the records and we thought, oh, you know, you don't even think that something like that would happen that you never get to see. him. So I would love to do that. I'd love to see that. And I'm a big fan of it. I'm not an obsessive fan, but I know quite a bit about it. And it resonated with me and just the quality of his work. Uh, because he influenced so many players. Uh, I would like to have seen that. And I see stuff on the internet of him playing live. And it's just astonishing that he's, uh, he's exceptionally good 
and in complete control of his work. I, I haven't, I've seen one or two places where he's flubbed the note here and there, but just the musicianship is just incredible. And that, I would love to have seen that uh, because those are uh, favorite albums of mine. And those sets played just about all the songs on the first record, most from the second. Uh, would have been great to have seen that. If there was one song that he could only perform, what would it be? Is there an ultimate song you'd like to get to see him do? Oh, his magnum opus, which they never played live, unfortunately, is uh, the title track to the second album, Diary of a Madman. It's this uh, incredibly multi-stage, quasi-neoclassical piece that has all kinds of influences in it. And he, he wrote those songs not by himself, obviously. He wrote them with uh, Bob Daisley, Lee Kerslake, and Ozzy. But uh, the majority of the music was written by him. And there is this uh, famous uh, seminar going around, a guitar seminar that, uh, some, that he gave where he was showing the attendees how to play sections from Diver of Madman, just him solo. And uh, that was great. So I, I thank God that that fellow had presence of mind to record it, <laughs> record the seminar. Yeah. That was probably about a month before he passed away. Uh, so Diary of a Madman, which is, uh, I would say, is probably, is arguably his, his greatest piece of work because of the structure and the complexity of it. And it really did encapsulate all the kinds of things that, that he brought, you know, his soloing, mm. his songwriting ability, uh, his composing of different sections. And his technical ability. Yeah, yeah. I might know the answer to this one now, but if you could be locked in a room for 24 hours with any performer throughout history, let's say a quarantine with them for 24 hours, who would it be? Well, it's a toss-up, frankly. Uh, the first one I'm going to tell you would probably scare me to death, but I would see it as necessary just, to, just because I have such great respect for him. And that would be Bob Dylan. Uh, I hear he's quite a curmudgeon and not a guy, you know, he's a man of few words personally. Uh, so I don't, that'd be kind of scary and interesting all at the same time. <laughs> so that yeah. would be my first one. If somebody put a gun to my head, that would be the first one. Every interview that I've ever seen with Maka uh, tells me that he would be an easy hang and a great person to be just uh, normal with where Bob is supposedly eccentric and, and odd and curmudgeonly. Uh, from everything I can tell, McCartney is a, a really friendly guy and affable and easy to talk to. So depends upon how he would feel that day. Would I feel like I wanted, you know, if I was adventurous, I would go with Dylan. If I was not feeling as if I was on my game, I would probably go with McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> Lennon falls into that category as well. You know, I'd be more afraid of him than I would McCartney for sure. But yeah, it'd be either McCartney or Bob Dylan. Uh. Two legendary picks. I agree, though, with Dylan. I feel like you'd walk away from Dylan thinking, did I say something wrong? Did Does he like me? Does he not like me? You know, he, uh, he just, as you said, he's a real curmudgeon and a bit odd. I was just going to say, he's he's been, he, from what I understand, he's a shy man to start with. And then he's been Bob Dylan since 1962. So mm. the guy has been almost 60 years of being this uh, amazingly famous, famous person that people want a piece of him, I would imagine. And being a shy man by nature and being an artist on top of it, it's this uh, perfect storm of, uh, you know, uh, of developing into somebody that's not the most affable. But you could say the same, same thing about McCartney. He's been famous since 1964 and doesn't exhibit any of those qualities. And he's just as creative, if not more, than Dylan mm. in some respects. So that's... Um, Potato, potato, depending upon how you look at it. 
Yeah, yeah, true. And uh, they're actually almost like polar opposites as well, because McCartney kind of has, he's kind of like the nicest man in show business. He is. You know, as you said, he's very approachable. I remember seeing a a picture and a little article in the newspaper one day of uh, this lady had seen him on the tube in London and he was going into town which was mind blown that Paul McCartney gets on the tube to go into town. But uh, she sat down in front of him, spent about 10 minutes staring at him, trying to figure out if it was him or not. And then apologized for disturbing him and asked, could she take a picture? And he sat, he sat there talking to her for about 10 or 15 minutes until his stop came. And there's not many legendary musicians. You could actually imagine doing that. You know, if you disturbed him, that they'd actually sit there chatting with you and be nice about it. Yep. But uh, yeah, he's definitely the nicest man in show business. And I agree, he's someone I'd like to spend a bit of time with in a room as well. I'd heard a similar, a similar story and it actually came from Maka himself. He basically said that this whole selfie culture, he's not a big fan of it because he would rather spend five minutes getting to know somebody and chatting them up and having a real uh, relationship, for lack of a better term, you know, making con- mm. contact with them instead of just taking this obligatory selfie. So when I heard that, I said, oh, that, I, I like that and I respect that. So it may have been something similar uh, that I was reading as well. And Paul says he doesn't really care for taking the selfies. And as a matter of fact, he dissuades people from doing it so that they can have their few minutes with him because he can't do that yeah. with everybody, obviously. Just the simple fact that he even thinks that way, I have to applaud him. And if you look at his whole career, he's always been like that. He's always been an affable, uh, accessible kind of guy. And in some ways, he is a standard for any artist that thinks you have to be eccentric and harsh and uh, weird. You know, Paul is relatively normal from what I understand and uh, is approachable and kind and thoughtful. And I'm sure he has his moments, but every indication is that he's a relatively normal bloke which is great. Mm. Yeah. All the fame and fortune didn't go to his head at all. He kind of, he seems like he stayed the same Paul McCartney he was back in the early sixties. Yeah. And good for him. Exactly. Exactly. Speaking of the early sixties, did you ever uh, buy into the whole theory is Paul dead? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I, at some point I remember thinking about it and, you know, just it's it's conspiracy theories in general, even those Mm. are, they were fun. I understand the fun in it. And, and the simple fact that people are interested in Paul McCartney to that extent to, you know, uh, postulate that something like that happened is just fun. (laughs) It's, it's light entertainment at best. It's, or, or, or at, at least it's light entertainment at best. It's, it's relatively respectable art. In either case, it mm. has nothing to do with the uh, with the music making, and that's what I was mostly focused on. It's not so much the you know the uh, personality of it. It's fun stuff. I don't want to belittle it, but short answer is no. Uh, if you were to ask me, as you did, if I believe in it, no, I think that uh, no, he was never replaced. It's Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a pretty out there. Terry, all right. <laughs> it's fun. I appreciate that. And I understand where it came from, too. And he did change. You know, the Beatles were changing and morphing. Not only were they just growing as people personally, you know, they were in their early uh, early 20s uh, uh, when they first started. And, and they, things changed and they grew facial hair. And, you know, some got thinner, some got heavier and they changed. And 
if you look at pictures exactly. from the early 60s to the late 60s, it looks that Paul looks like a different guy, and they all do. Yeah, yeah, people age. <laughs> Don't I know that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so if there was a song that would appear on the soundtrack to your life, what would it be? <sighs> there she goes by the laws. Really? Yes. Lee Mavers is a genius. Oh, that's a beautiful piece of pop. I love that. I've heard that since it was released, and I never get tired of it. It just resonates like ringing a bell with me. Uh, it's beautiful. It's perfect. I love pop music. It encapsulates everything that I like on a superficial level when it comes to music. When I'm down and if I hear it come on the radio, my spirits lift. From God's lips to Lee Maver's ears. So, Lee, if you're listening, <laughs> thank you for writing that song, my friend. And he's a Liverpoolian, right? Is that how is that how I say it? It is. It is. Yep. So uh, I wish he would have written some more songs and gotten active, but that was his life. And uh, hopefully he's living well off the residuals of that one song. I know they had some other songs and that whole first that whole album that they released that that was on was great. It was beautiful. Uh, love pop music and especially love that song. Um, when it came along, I was floored. And I wasn't even waiting for a song like that. I was kind of tuned out to listen to the radio, et cetera. And that just hit me like a bolt of lightning. And it still thrills me when I hear it to this day. So if I could have one song only in my life, it would be There She Goes by the Laws. It's a very good choice. It's one of them songs that as soon as you hear the first couple of notes, it instantly puts a smile on your face. Yeah. It's a really feel good song. It eclipses anything. And I've put it up against the best. I've put it up against American bubblegum that I love. I've put it up against great art of Dylan that I love. And none of it comes close to what the visceral response and the primal response I have from that uh, the, what, two and a half minutes uh, by those guys. His voice is perfect. The, the playing is great. The structure is great. I don't know how he did it. I don't want to know. Uh, if I ever talked to him, I would simply thank him. Don't tell me anything about it, Lee. Just thank you for writing. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. No, it's a, it's a great song. So uh, another one of your songs is going to play us out. Would you like to tell us a little bit about it? The next song that, uh, that you were going to play is uh, a song called Black. Black had a dual purpose on, on this record. Uh, Mobocracy was a themed record, so I wanted to make sure that lyrically... It was speaking to the theme of the record, which was uh, this telling of what uh, America was going through at the time uh, from about 2015 until 2020, and we're still going through it. And the characters that I uh, wrote about on the other songs, which are more heavy rock, uh, uh, tell a story about those people that are feeling those tectonic shifts in the aggression and the anger of America. Uh, and Black, I wanted it to uh, bring uh, to closure the themes so uh, lyrically, it talks about uh, how those dark forces are being forced upon us and that we have to resist them. Now, from a musical standpoint, I'm a big fan of, of heavy rock, but I wanted to make sure that my audience knew that uh, the trip that we're going to be on is going to take a few twists and turns. And Black is an acoustic song. And um, it's uh, referring to those kinds of things that we've been talking about, the Beatles, and Bob Dylan. But as well, one of my favorites, uh, a big love of mine is Led Zeppelin. And on some of the Zeppelin albums, specifically four, there will be snarling rock on some of it. And then there will be uh, some acoustic stuff. 
I didn't want the song to be sappy or sentimental, but I wanted to have it to be exotic and uh, mysterious and uh, have a different tone to it. And uh, so I made it an acoustic song. So that's why I asked you to play Black, was so that anybody that's sort of discovering me will hear one end of the spectrum, which is All Freaks, which is heavy rock. It's really aggressive and punky and uh, uh, reflects all that kind of stuff. And then on the other end of the spectrum, Black has uh, these acoustic things and influences of the, the Zeppelins uh, and uh, the Dylans and the Beatles. Perfect, perfect. So before we go, is there any message you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, first of all, I want to thank you, Brian, for having me. I appreciate that there, there are so many uh, independent artists, even though I'm signed to uh, the local Philadelphia label, Electric Talent Records, they, that want your attention. So I want you to know that I genuinely uh, appreciate that you're, you're having me here and giving me time because of the sheer amount of uh, music that comes your way. So thank you. The other thing is to my the audience, it's a small audience that I have now, but it's growing. And I want to thank them for following me and continuing to let me do what I do. And that's really important because uh, even though I would still do it if they weren't there, I wanna thank them for being there for me. And the very last thing is these times that we're in are going to be over soon. And hopefully we'll be able to get together and celebrate in a joyous, glorious sort of way. And one of the things that I've learned because I've seen people, uh, I've known people that have lost loved ones, uh, that's really painful. So. What I am trying to do in my life and what the only thing I would recommend to other folks, if I could say one thing, is if you love somebody, tell them that you love them.
soul just caves in The elevated by elegance Pious just acquiesce Black! The new light Black! Come see it in a new light Shogging on the heap dog I'm playing